Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. I love it when the worship is so centred on Jesus. Because, you know, we can get excited about singing about other things, about revival. I keep going back to that that first question in the Westminster Confession what is the chief end of man to worship God and to enjoy him forever and that's great isn't it this week as we continue to look at our values as a church we come to the first of two that are concerned with the way our church, in common with others in our family of churches, are led. And how we receive input from outside. Now you know, how a church is led, and some other characteristics about it, can greatly influence the way you are seen by others. Stereotypes build up. And um, they rarely give an accurate picture of the whole story. Usually stereotypes pick on one aspect of church life and exaggerate it. And that was brought home to me recently in a story that I heard. And it was about a meeting that had been arranged where a number of church leaders from different denominations across the town, and in fact some leaders from other faith groups as well, had gathered together. And during this ecumenical meeting, a fire broke out in another part of the building. And it was discovered, and in the absence of a fire alarm, someone rushed into the meeting room and shouted, The building's on fire! Now, there was an immediate response to that. The Methodists gathered in a corner and prayed. The Baptists cried out, Where's the water? The Quakers quietly praised God for the blessing that fire brings. The Revivalists prayed for the fire to spread. The Lutherans put a notice on the door declaring that the fire was evil. The Catholics took the opportunity to pass a collection plate. The Anglicans formed a procession and marched out. The Congregationalists shouted, Every man for himself! The Evangelicals shouted, It's the vengeance of God! The Jews actually painted some symbols on the doorposts, hoping that the fire would pass over them. The Jehovah's Witnesses gave out some literature about the fire, while the Mormons ran a late-night TV commercial for free videos about it. The Christian scientists agreed amongst themselves that there actually wasn't a fire, while the Scientologists charged an admission fee. The Presbyterians, well, they appointed a chairperson who was to oversee a committee to look into the matter and make a written report to their voting assembly. 
Now, it's amazing how different styles of leadership can shape a church in different ways. And this morning, we're going to look at one of our leadership values. And it's this. Being a church led by male elders, one of whom is clearly understood to be gifted to be lead elder, who are ordained by the Holy Spirit, recognised and confirmed through apostolic ministry. These men are to be helped in fulfilling their calling with, through ongoing fellowship with translocal ministries. It's a bit of a mouthful. Now, if you've been in our church for a while, or if you've been in another New Frontiers church, you probably take it for granted that the church is led by elders, and that these elders are men. Although, in fact, here in Doncaster, we have yet to formally appoint elders. But if you've only recently become a Christian, or if you've become from a different church background, this could be strange to you. And add to that bit this bit about translocal ministry, and you could easily end up being a bit confused. Particularly because this value can seem very much at odds with what we see in our culture. But if we as a church want to see biblical values restored to the church, we have to recognise that much in our culture today is not biblical. And that's sad. Our culture has in fact moved a long way from being godly at its heart. In our contemporary Western culture, it's democratic, it's gender neutral, it's suspicious of authority, and it doesn't like hierarchies. And as Christians, eager to reach out to our culture, we can feel quite sensitive about accusations that the church is either authoritarian or sexist or out of touch. But I don't think these sensitivities should make us shy of using language like apostolic authority or male headship or elders or submission, some of which we talked about last week. In fact, we have to resist the pressure to avoid it. In fact, I would argue the main reason for the relative success that we see as a family of churches in planting and growing new churches is our commitment to teams of male elders leading churches supported by translocal ministry. It's all about leadership. In every area of human life, leadership is important. If you look at a good school, a good business, a good sports team, you'll find behind it there is good leadership at its heart. And church leadership shares many similarities with leadership in these other spheres. But it has the added responsibility of being answerable to the highest authority. The writer to the Hebrews makes this clear. This is what he writes. You can find it in Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then also, 
there is the great cons consolation that the ultimate responsibility lies not with us, but with our Saviour, who is called the Chief Shepherd. Our understanding is that this leadership is to be exercised by teams of elders who are submitted to apostolic authority. We'll often hear the question, though, why do elders have to be men? And sometimes those from other church traditions make sweeping statements about us. They say things like, New Frontiers doesn't allow women in leadership. I want to say this morning, that is simply not true. Even here, in our church plant, we have women serving in leadership positions right across the church. In fact, we probably have more women in leadership than we do men. Just to give a few examples, we have Betty and Sue leading a midweek group. Catherine leads the worship team. Philippa, Abby and Rachel, although not leading that team itself, regularly lead our worship on a Sunday morning. Morwenna, Becky and Corinne often organise and lead meetings for women. Rachel has led the youth work. Carrie, together with Sue and Abby, have pioneered and lead Flourish. And these are just the instances that immediately sprang to mind. I hope it's clear that women can and do serve in many leadership positions in our church. What we have to be clear about, though, is that only men can be elders. I think it's also fair to point out, not all men are called to be elders. It's a matter of being equal but different. From Genesis 1.27, our understanding is that men and women are created equal in the image of God. Here's what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Neither sex has greater worth or value before God than the other. But what scripture also reveals is that men and women are to have different roles as part of God's creation. It's this equality with difference and unity in men and women that reflects something of God himself. God is one, but he's three. He is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And each person of the Trinity has different roles. But there's no sense in which the Son is any less equal than the Father or the Spirit any less equal than the Son. In God himself we have this picture of equality but with difference and unity. Now I understand this to mean that in the Trinity there is a genuine submission of the Son and the Spirit 
to the Father, as well as there being genuine equality. I think one of the problems is, as we discussed last week, is nobody likes this word submission. It seems in many people's minds to imply weakness and abuse. And unfortunately, traditionally, in the past, the church has been part of that at times. Together with the wider culture, it has been used as an excuse to abuse or suppress women. But I want to say, I think it is a serious sin when women are prevented from being all that they are meant to be in God. Our desire is that everyone in the church, whether male or female, young or old, should flourish in the gifts and the role that God has for them. When the Bible speaks about submission... It has to mean something other than weakness or abuse. And I believe it does. I believe it's actually talking about strength and about freedom. The key to understanding this is that true submission is not something which is forcefully imposed. It's something which is voluntarily given. Just like when we discussed it last week in the context of family life. And the greatest example of that kind has to be Jesus himself. Who firstly submitted to his earthly parents and then also to God the Father. In the New Testament we see that women were among Jesus' closest companions we see that they were highly involved in church life. However, the twelve disciples were men. And when eldership roles are discussed, it is always in terms of men. And I don't think that is simply a reflection of the church being born in a sexist society. Because Jesus and his apostles were actually very radical when it came to knocking down false idols in their culture. And I, I have no doubt that if Jesus wanted women as elders, he would have made that clear. Because women were highly involved in the early church. So who appoints elders? I mean, this is going to become a salient question for us. As we look towards establishing an eldership, who and how are they appointed? The first thing is, we don't just appoint men to eldership because they've been around a long time. Equally, we don't appoint them because they've got a degree from a particular Bible college. Instead, we examine a man in several different ways. We look at his character his gifting, and his calling. And I would say there's four parties involved in this. The first is God. If you want to look these up later, um, look at Acts 20:28 20, and Ephesians 4:11. In Acts 20, Luke refers to overseers that the Holy Spirit has appointed. And Ephesians 4 tells us about pastors and teachers along with evangelists and prophets and apostles and they are said to be gifts 
of the ascended Christ to his church. Spiritual authority comes from God's ordaining, not from anything we can do. Elders need to be appointed in response to the leading of the Holy Spirit and evidence of God's hands on that person's life. The second party involved is apostles. You can look in Acts 14.23 where it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Apostles are given to the church by God as master builders. And they need to be involved in this process of appointing elders. The recognition of and submission to apostolic authority is actually an important aspect of being an elder. The third party is other elders. In 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul writes to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. We believe that elders operate in team. And that means an elder needs to be recognised and accepted by his fellow elders. And the fourth one, and this may come as a surprise, is the local church. I've already read out that bit from Acts 14.23. And while in the New Testament it was apostles who appointed elders, it's important to notice that they did it for the church. Without the recognition of elders by the congregation, it would not be possible for elders to guard, to guide, or to govern the church. So elders. A team with a leader. In the New Testament, the term elders is always plural. And I think there's three reasons why eldership is meant to be plural in that way. The first is a social reason. Relationships in a team are vitally important. And elders need to be more than just work colleagues. They should be like a band of brothers who are deeply committed to one another. And actually enjoy being with one another. We all know that the best teams we've been part of is where there is a deep level of care, concern and respect for each other. And those relationships are often built every bit as much off the field as during the game. The second reason is a missional reason. A team is joined by a shared purpose. And it's often bigger than a simply one-man mission. The team want the team to succeed. The Bible teaches in several places the benefits of working together, of agreeing together, and things like that. The third reason 
is a reason that is complementary. Different elders simply have different gifts, and no one has them all. Working together in an eldership team allows each elder's strengths to flourish, but it also allows their weaknesses to be covered up by other members of the team. Sorry, I think that sounds wrong. Covered rather than covered up. Emphasising as we do the importance of having a team to lead a church. Some people ask, well why do you need to have a lead elder? But our understanding is simply that every team needs a leader. The basis for that again is the model of the Trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Who are all fully, equally God. But within this team Trinity, it's the Father who takes the lead. And that is a model we would look to replicate at all levels of leadership within the church, encouraging people to form and develop teams wherever appropriate. Elders have to fulfil the qualifications the Bible sets for eldership. They need to be able to guard and guide and govern the church. But the lead elder will often have a unique contribution to make. He needs to be a man who's able to lead that team, ensuring each of them is able to fulfil the calling of God on their lives for the building up and the blessing of the church. He's not any more an elder than the others, but someone that the others look to in terms of his leadership and turn to to help them fulfil God's calling. So what's the place of this translocal ministry? Well, the main responsibility of the eldership team is the care and the oversight of the local church. But we also have a much bigger vision than just our small patch. We know, for example, that Jesus has called us to a global mission. And so we should feel a deep commitment to being part of the apostolic momentum of New Frontiers. Practically, that means as local churches, we welcome translocal ministries, those who move and minister outside their own location, to bring to us what we lack. We should welcome them ministering to us. We should gladly be looking at their leadership amongst us. Because in Ephesians 4, it tells us these gifts are given to build and to equip the church and to bring us to a point of maturity. And working with them means that we know that together we are more than we are apart. It's this input from the outside that can help us keep focused, keep on track, keep looking outward, keep following the vision, and keep our foundations right. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.